You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to episode number 225 of You Don't Know Flack. I'm your host, Rob Flack O'Hara, and on today's episode, we will be talking about e-codering. But before we get started about this little program I wrote many years ago, I have another program that I wrote on my Commodore 64 to store the notes for this show. So while I load those notes back up, that'll give us a few minutes to chat on this week's loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Welcome back to You Don't Know Flack. Uh, if you haven't been following all the stuff I'm doing online, I have been posting videos of my van build, the things that I've been working on on turning my van into a little camper van so that I can participate in hashtag van life. And by hashtag van life, I mean most of those people live in their vans and I will be a guy who occasionally goes out on the weekend and sleeps in a van when I could be sleeping in a very nice home. But it's, um, uh, I don't know why. I don't know why. That's the hardest question to answer. Why am I doing it? I don't know. But, uh, it is a lot of fun to work on. It's given me something to do. And uh, another part of that has been starting to create these videos. It's a, a different uh, mental muscle to try and stretch to do uh, not just videos, but uh, videos that work on YouTube, which means they have to have a certain pace, they have to have a certain look, and they have to fit in a certain uh, structure, uh, which includes time. Uh, so it's been interesting. And, uh, anyway, I've, I've had several people tell me that they've enjoyed the videos that I've posted so far. And some of those people have gone out of their way to say that they are not interested in, uh, the van or the van project, but they have enjoyed the video because it's me and I I've got to work a little bit to get a little bit more of my personality in the videos. I think the videos are a little bit more dry, uh, than the podcasts are, but We'll get there. So anyway, if uh, that strikes your fancy at all, uh, go to YouTube.com. And uh, if you if you didn't already have URLs registered, YouTube has turned uh, given everybody uh, their own URL, but they've added an at symbol in front of it. So it is YouTube.com forward slash at Big Rob's Van. So if you want to check out those videos, they're pretty fun. Uh, I get tired of saying like and subscribe. Uh, it's, it's such a weird, such a weird thing to do. Um, and especially to have to, uh, you feel like you're begging for people to click live or to subscribe to your channel. But, uh, since I've started doing that, people have started liking and subscribing and then that feeds into, um, YouTube's algorithm somehow. And it promotes your videos and shows it to, to more people and, uh, and, and more people do that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's pretty fun. So anywho, uh, Big Rob's Van on YouTube. Also, uh, I've been doing 
Rando Rob. Every now and then I've taken a couple of short breaks on Rando Rob, but I've been pretty consistent with posting those. Uh, if you remember, you, uh, Rando Rob was the video series I was doing just for patrons, but now I'm doing it for uh, the world to see. So you could go to uh, youtube.com forward slash Rob O'Hara, and there's a playlist there for the Rando Rob videos. So you can watch those. It's the show where I uh, just pick random things out of my collection, show them off and, and, uh, do that kind of stuff. So, um, it's also on the audio feed and you could go to, um, podcast.robohara.com. You can find the episodes there. You can find out information about the feed. You can actually look up Rando Rob on, uh, any podcatcher. It should be listed. It is listed in, uh, iTunes or Apple podcasts, whatever you want to call that. So if you want a separate feed, uh, for that, if you're not subscribed to the get all the shows I do feed, which is the easiest one to do, but if you don't have that and you just want a separate feed for that, you can listen to, um, the Rando Rob, you know, and the funny thing that I've noticed about the Rando Rob is on the old videos when I was doing it just for Patreon, it was almost like a, a video diary blog. You know, there's the videos are just filled with stuff that has nothing to do with the item. It's me talking about. Uh, my life or what's going on, things like that. And so as I repost those, they don't really make sense. So I've had to trim a lot of that stuff out and going forward as I record them, they're much more um, on topic. So it, it's just interesting to watch, you know, uh, uh, as a, uh, I hate, I don't like the word creator, but as somebody that's making videos or making podcasts to watch how a show evolves uh, over time based on, you know, listeners needs and, and your needs as the person creating it. So anyway, still out there doing random rub. I do have to talk for just a minute about if you saw my posts from spring break, uh, we, there's a, a place in Oklahoma, a town called broken bow that has a bunch of cabins for rent. And really the only thing that broken bow is known for is being a place that rents cabins. It's just literally this tiny, uh, town where people go down there to get away and rent cabins and enjoy nature. And I suggested to my wife that we rent a cabin during spring break. And so we did, and they have cabins of all different sizes, but most of them sleep four to six people, uh, maybe one family, maybe two families Those that, uh, about that size. We've gone down there before multiple times and rented cabins. And so apparently, I don't know exactly what happened still. I need to clarify this with my wife, but she tried to rent a cabin two days before we were set to go down there, which is very, very late, especially during spring break. And I guess what ended up happening is they had a very large cabin that had not rented. And so they were renting it at the same price as the cheaper cabin. So this cabin, I believe normally goes for about $400 a night, but we got it for much less than that, about half that. <clears throat> and so, but we didn't really know what size the cabin was until we got there. And so when we, uh, this is a four hour drive. So we drove four hours, uh, and we're still in Oklahoma. You could drive from where I, I live in central Oklahoma and you could drive down. It takes four hours to get to the bottom corner of Oklahoma and when we got to this cabin, we were hoping or expecting a cabin that would sleep for Both of my uh, kids went with us. Uh, do you call them grown kids? I'm really struggling with the term. And one's a senior and one's college age. So it seems weird to call them, you know, kids. 
I mean, even if you say children, mentally, I think of little tiny toddlers, you know, um, but they're not married, you know, so I've been mean, grown children. Maybe I'll say grown children. I don't know. Anyway, we were hoping for something that would sleep the four of us, and we ended up with basically two connected cabins. One was more like a hunting lodge, and the other was a large cabin with a connected rec room. <laughs> so we literally, there were at least 20 places to sleep. We could sleep 20. If you were inviting people over for the day, this place would easily, oh, I mean, you could have 100 people, no problem during the day. We went into the smaller cabin first, which was set up kind of like a, if you took a two or three bedroom house and turned it into a studio apartment. So it had a very large um, studio area in the main part of the house that had a king size bed and then a couch you could sleep on. It had a full uh, kitchen, dining room, uh, like an island to eat at with eight bar stools. I mean, a large area. And then it had a like a three-car garage that had been converted into a rec room that had a pool table, ping pong table, air hockey table, a foosball table, all that stuff, beanbags, an arcade game. Uh, my kids spent a lot of time there. Then the main part, when we walked in, I was just blown away. I, I said, honey, you've rented a community center. Uh, the main room we walked into had a dining room table. Uh, that seated 10 and it was not the only area to seat. There were, I mean, there were two big islands with bar stools all around them and more tables. Uh, in, the, in the main room, there was a giant sectional couch. Uh, you could easily have slept three people just on that couch. There was a poker table. There was a bar. <laughs> there was a wood burning stove. There was an electric fireplace. I mean, it was abs. It was unbelievable. Uh, the, the, as we, we walked from room to room because we were like, well, let's go find the master bedroom. And then each one was like, well, maybe this is the master bedroom. Or maybe, I mean, they, all the bedrooms were giant with king-size beds and then large couches that people could sleep on. I think most of the couches were pull-outs. So when I say it slept 20, I'm not talking about pulling out the couches. I'm just talking about if you slept one person on a couch plus all the beds. And the back room was kind of like a what I would imagine a sleep, uh, like a camp thing. And there was a king size bed, but then there were four queen size bunk beds. I mean, two, two sets of bunk beds. So four queen beds, but they were bunk beds. I've never seen queen size bunk beds. It was the craziest thing. Uh, you know, we just spent the time walking around. We, we were just so blown away. And of course, outside was, um, absolutely gorgeous. You're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, there was a hot tub, there was a fire pit and, and the kids, we cooked hot dogs out of the fire pit. Uh, I mean, we just had a great few days. Um, you know, a lot of people said, oh, it was nice to get away, you know, for being online. I mean, I did take my laptop, but it was a little difficult to get uh, service, although they did have uh, internet in, in the actual house. So it wasn't that hard to get online. In fact, all the TVs were all um, Roku style streaming TVs. So they all had Roku and Netflix. And, uh, fortunately a lot of the people that had been there before us had logged in to services. So thanks to, um, Katie one nine two who had logged into Disney plus and left her account <laughs> locked in. So we were able to check out Disney plus for the first time. So, uh, but yeah, just, uh, 
man, there's just something about sitting out there in the woods. You know, this cabin, it did say it was on four acres of land. Uh, so you're just out there away from everybody, you know, and, and, um, man, one of the things you forget about is because of all the light pollution in the city, you know, going up and looking at the stars. I mean, you go outside out in this place and it almost looked like there was a street light or something, but you looked up and it was because the moon and the stars were lighting up. It was just, it was really incredible and uh, a great way to, Man, just unplug and reset a little bit, you know. So a great uh, – when I was a kid, I imagined my spring breaks would be, you know, going to the beach, going and partying with thousand other people, and that sounded like a good idea. And, and these days, spring break, you know, going out to four acres in the middle of nowhere and just sitting in a hot tub and watching the sunset, that that's pretty okay too. <laughs> so we definitely enjoyed ourselves. Uh, we, we had a good time and a good time. Um, I I've said this before, maybe not on the podcast, but one of, uh, a, a true, true blessing, uh, is that my children are literally best friends. So I, I don't, I've never seen kids that are actually this good of friends. Um, my sister and I were okay friends when we were young, but when we got older, she had her friends. I had my friends, you know, we did not hang out. My sister and I did not hang out. Um, but my kids do hang out and they watch movies together. They do things together. They go eat together. They are really, really close. And it's, uh, so when we go on vacation like this, it's great that the two of them just hung out and they got to, uh, they spent a lot of time playing pool and, and air hockey and foosball <laughs> and grilling hot dogs. So, uh, everybody, everybody had a good time and, and we all came back home with, uh, uh, you know, just that sense of, uh, refreshing, just, uh, that sense of, of, uh, you've rebooted and now, now everything feels uh, fresh and new again. That lasts for about 48 hours, <laughs> but, uh, it's always good to do. Uh, I got a Patreon question. I actually got this question, um, a while ago and, uh, I misplaced it because I mentioned on another podcast that I recently got a new computer a couple months ago. And so I lost some of my notes. Um, but uh, I redug it up. This is, uh, a question that was submitted to me through Patreon from listener and supporter Edward Smith. Uh, and this is what Edward sent to me. He said, it seems like your parents were able to buy you most of the things you wanted as a kid, but was there ever a present or item that you really wanted and asked for, but never got? And then he goes on and says, for him, it was a mongoose bike. He wanted one more than anything and asked and asked, but when he finally got a BMX bike for his 11th birthday, it was not a mongoose. And he says it was a fine bike. It was from Western Auto and it had cool wheels and everything. Uh, and it was much cheaper than a mongoose, but he says he is sure that his disappointment showed in some way. Um, and then he went on to say, you know, as a kid, he never really got that his parents couldn't just buy anything. Uh, and of course he did end up loving that bike, but it weighed about three times as much as his friends mongooses, uh, and, um, uh, and even fancier, uh, top of the line BMX racing bike. So, 
Um, he did say that almost everything else that he wanted, he eventually got, even if it was the following year, like Atari, even though um, it was the Sears <laughs> version of Atari. And he said he thought maybe it was a floor demo model <laughs> or something like that. And that his dad uh, was uh, uh, sometimes kind of cheap and would uh, uh, was the king of the off-brand models, which I, I definitely – uh, can relate to more for me. So, um, this is a great question because uh, as an adult, as I think back, I can't remember anything that I ever wanted that I didn't get. Um, but that being said, usually those, uh, my, my birthday's in August and then we have Christmas, which is four months later, right? So my big things always came either for birthday or for Christmas. So, um, you know, things like wanting a, you know, a BMX bike or a skateboard or things like that, um, I wouldn't get any other time of the year. Like nobody was buying me a bike, you know, in, in the spring, right? Um, that that was something that would wait um, for, um, for you know, my birthday or for Christmas. So... I'm trying to think, how could that possibly be? You know, my dad was a blue-collar worker. He worked in a print shop. Um, my mom uh, babysat kids for a long time, and, and then um, she did eventually go back into the workforce, but it was, you know, mostly secretarial-type work. So we were not rich, you know, by by any stretch of the imagination. We, we didn't have... Um, a lot of money. I, I believe that we would qualify as lower middle class. I think that's about where we were. So uh, it's, it's seems like that I would have got less, you know, but the only thing I can think of is that both of my parents, um, my dad was one of five kids. Uh, my mom is one of four kids. So I don't think that they had lots and lots of toys and things like that when they were kids. So kind of getting my sister and myself what we wanted as kids was a priority for them, you know? So maybe we got more things than, than other kids had. Um, I do remember one funny story where I went to, uh, go see Santa Claus. And this would have been sometime after the empire strikes back, but before return of the Jedi. So, uh, this could have been Christmas, 1980, 1981, which would have been maybe, um, uh, let's see, it could have been first grade, could have been second grade, somewhere in there. And, uh, I remember that I wanted Boba Fett's slave one ship. Right. And so we went to the mall to go see Santa and we're standing in line and then all of a sudden I was like, what is that thing called? I can't remember. I can't remember what Boba Fett's ship is called. And then I was asking my mom, I was like, I think I want something else instead, you know, like, I think I want whatever, <laughs> something else, you know, like, I was like, I really want a snow speeder. And my mom was like, no, you said you wanted a uh, Boba Fett ship, the slave one. And I was like, oh yeah, but I kind of want a snow speeder. She's like, nope, you better tell Santa you wanted the slave one. And so I do remember her kind of steering that conversation back to saying I wanted the slave one. And, um, now, in retrospect, I do feel like um, <laughs> that the slave one was at home sitting in the closet, <laughs> ready, probably ready to be put under the tree that year. So um, 
but I just don't remember, you know, a lot of times like, uh, like I don't remember asking for specific transformers. I just said, Hey, uh, for Christmas this year, I want a transformer. And then I got a transformer. I got Optimus prime. Um, uh, and then I also got, um, I forget the name. There was one that was a police car. I got that one, but those were the two, um, uh, police cars that I got the, the big specific things that, that I always asked for was, was star Wars stuff. Um, and, and, you know, I think my parents did say like, uh, you know, Christmas is not a shopping list. Like you can ask for 10 things and you, you might get a couple, you know, but that's how it works. So I, I was never really disappointed, uh, in those Christmas things. Now I will tell you a story and, and this is, um, kind of weird because uh collectively my wife and I make more money than my parents made when I was growing up. So we've had the means to, you know, buy my kids more gifts and more expensive gifts than my parents had. <clears throat> and um but again, I want to soften that by saying I we just didn't really want for much, you know, but uh I remember when when my son was really young uh, he asked for a GoPro camera and, and when I say young, like maybe he was 10 or so, I mean, he was pretty young and we didn't know what a GoPro camera was. And so I went and looked it up and, and, um, you know, it said, Oh, it's an action cam. And we Googled it. And then we found this thing that said, you know, other companies make the similar things, you know? And I remember the one that we found was Vivitar and it said, Vivitar has a cam that does everything the GoPro does. And you can buy all the same, you know, accessories like a waterproof shell and this and that. And it's half the price of a GoPro. So get the Vivitar. So that's what we did. We got the Vivitar one. And the look, I mean, on Christmas morning, we gave him that. And I mean, this was like hundreds of dollars worth of stuff. And we gave that to him. And the look on his face, he was so disappointed. And I mean, we knew it immediately. And we were like, oh, it's a, you know, everybody says it's the same and this and that. And, you know, <clears throat> uh, I, I, I've told this story before, uh, when I was in, I believe it was eighth grade, could have been the first day of ninth grade. I think it was the first day of eighth grade, but, um, uh, my mom would always take me school shopping and get me like a few pairs of jeans, uh, blue jeans and a few shirts to wear to school, right? New, new shirts, new jeans. And I remember that all my friends were getting uh, Ocean Pacific OP shirts, Hobie and OP shirts. And uh, the day before school, I begged my mom. I was like, can we please, please, please go to the store? And I think I just told this story recently. But the gist of it was when we got there, I found, I was just desperate looking for an OP shirt. And I found one. And my dad said something like, all he wants, you know, because my mom's like, what about this? What about this? And then my dad says, all he wants is an OP shirt. That's all he wants or whatever. And I was like, yes, uh, my dad gets it. <laughs> my, my dad was not being supportive. He was saying it in a bad way. But uh, but he was right. That's exactly. I wanted something. Like, it could have been something that was ugly that I didn't care. But if it had the OP logo on it, that's what I wanted, you know. And and my parents did buy me an OP shirt. And I wore it in the first day of school. And I loved it. Um, so, um, but a lot of times, like, my, like, if I said, hey, I want a cool shirt, my parents didn't know the brand. The brand wasn't important, you know. Um, I had to tell them the brand. And so that kind of became a thing with, with my kids. Like when they said, 
uh, you know, when Mason said he wanted a, a GoPro, I didn't know the brand. So I, I was like, oh, that is just a generic term for action camera. And then we found a good action camera, but it wasn't the brand, you know? So, um, I mean, that's, that's really the best way I can, I can answer that is I don't have anything. Um, I mean, I just didn't want for stuff as a kid. I had just the best childhood you could possibly imagine. <laughs> it was, it was really good. And I, and I just, uh, I don't have any, um, any of those things where I just say, man, I never got this and I always wanted it. You know, I just don't have that. So, um, I definitely lucked out and, and we tried to do the same thing, uh, for our kids. So, uh, and hopefully our kids will do that for their kids someday. So, uh, if you have a question you would like me to answer on a podcast or would simply like to support my shows, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara to sign up today and join supporters like Edward Smith, Scott Von Drasic, and John Boat of Car Schaller. All of my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server or leave a message on the podcast hotline, which is area code 405-486-YDKF. I have to tell you, the show notes loaded quite a while ago, and they are sitting here ready to go. All I have is this ready cursor on the Commodore 64 with a flashing prompt. So let's go ahead and type run and get started with this episode's topic, which is e-coder ring. So on a recent episode of Rando Rob, I talked about visual basics. I started using Visual Basic at work. I discovered it through a coworker. I ended up buying my own copy of Visual Basic at a thrift store for like a few bucks. And Visual Basic really opened the world of programming to me. Now, I dabbled in Basic as a kid. I think everybody who had a computer dabbled in Basic. Uh, but my programs were not very sophisticated. In fact, sometimes I tried to make them look more sophisticated than they really were. I tried to program my own text adventure, but I had no idea how to do that. So it worked if you type the exact right command in, it might move you through the game, but it really wasn't a real text adventure. It was just something that kind of looked um, like a text adventure. So Visual Basic to me was just something that clicked. And once I had it installed and began using it, um, there's a thing with programming that is a subset of a thing with computers, <laughs> which sounds confusing. Um, but in the early days of home computers, there's a, a thing that I talk about, which is were computers a solution looking for a tool or were they a tool looking for a solution? So the difference between those things is, for example, if you said, I'm running a business and I need a way to figure people's taxes I need a computer to do that. So you had a problem and you're buying a computer to solve that problem. 
But the other hand, and what happened to a lot of people in the early days of home computers is they bought a computer and then went around going, what can I solve with this computer? And so when that happens, and I'm not saying it's wrong necessarily, uh, and lots of people did it, and I did it, and everybody did it to a certain extent, but when that happens, you end up making a lot of dumb solutions to things that weren't really problems. You go in search of problems and then try to force a computer to be a solution to places where there weren't problems. I'll give you a perfect example of that. When I was uh, in the late mid to late 90s living in Spokane, I just I found out I got a brand new uh, PC um, internal modem that was a modem and a fax machine, and it would also do voicemail. And you could set up this software that would play a WAV file to be your answering machine, and then you could leave voicemail. Now, I had an answering machine, but I thought, wouldn't this be great to run off of the computer? And so I dragged a computer and put it in our kitchen and plugged the phone line into it and set up an entire voicemail system. And that lasted about 48 hours. And my wife said, Why, what was wrong with the, you know, the answering machine we had? And I didn't have an answer. I thought, well, nothing really. And so I disassembled all that. And that's just an example of having this technology and going uh, in search of problems, you know. And so Visual Basic was a little bit of both uh, in that regard. There were problems that I had at work, like things that I needed to figure out how to do, processes that I needed to do that needed software solutions. And I was able to write those things. I wrote programs that did things that made my life better, that made my job better. But a lot of times I would sit there at Visual Basic and think, what can I write today with Visual Basic? And so that's that that opposite. It's the yin to the yang of that problem. It is, I've got this tool. Now I got to go around and find something to solve uh, with this tool. Now, I have always had an affinity for uh, codes and puzzles and cryptograms and and things like that. I remember going to the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I think uh, Smithsonian also has one. Uh, But I've seen a couple of the original Enigma machines, which were used to create codes and transmit codes in World War II. And I remember when I saw the first one, and I just got chills up my back. I just thought it was uh, uh, amazing uh, piece of history, you know, and something that, that someone had created that could create codes that you could send even back then, you know, um, and I used to say 50 years ago, but we're, you know, 80 years ago or whatever. I mean, it's coming up, you know, 75, 80 years ago to create these codes that were essentially unbreakable, unless you happen to have another (laughs) Enigma machine on the other side. Right. Um, so I, I've always had this interest in codes And one of the seeds of that, I have to say, and one that I think we can all agree on, uh, or at least shared momentarily, was the uh, Little Orphan Annie decoder ring uh, that was in Christmas Story. And Ralphie gets this decoder ring, and this is based on a real product, 
and uh, listened to the radio and they gave a code and then you had, you know, owned this decoder ring and uh, you would write down the code that they would give you. And it was basically um, what is called a Caesar cipher. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But basically in the show, what it is, is um, uh, let's say you were to take an alphabet like A through Z and then you take the entire alphabet underneath there and you shift all the letters over one. Okay. That would be called in the uh, Caesar cipher. That is called a right shift of one. So what you do now is you write down your message. Of course, in the movie, it was drink more Ovaltine. Um, but let's say you had a very short message like the word flack. Um, so with a right shift of one, you have moved the alphabet over one letter. And so on the top for our message, we look up the letter F, uh, and the letter after that is G it's shifted one to the right. So we write down G, uh, and we, for L we would write down M because that's the next letter. So basically we've shifted all the letters over, uh, one letter for a, we would write B and so on. If there were a Z in our message, we would write the letter a, and we just wrap it around. Right. Uh, so that, uh, and, and based on the name Caesar cipher, yes, this is a cipher that, that Julius Caesar <laughs> actually used. Um, and they had uh, very basic, you would do a left shift or a right shift and, um, and based on, you know, how many numbers now this is um, one of the easiest codes code systems in the world to break. It's not difficult to break. All you got to do, um, I mean, with a computer right now, you would just have to run through 26 iterations and one of them is, is going to be right. Like you just shift, keep shifting the alphabet over and over until eventually, you know, you get the right words, right? Um, now I didn't really, wasn't really thinking about writing my own uh, encryption or secret message program. Um, but I did experience two different coworkers who got fired from work and both of them were fired because they were having inappropriate chats using AOL or AIM, which was uh, AOL's instant messenger. Uh, American online instant messenger was AIM. And when you chatted with other people using instant messenger um, or AIM, it sent your text in, in clear text. It was not encrypted at all. So if you sent a message to someone else, uh, it went through the inner tubes, <laughs> the interweb, uh, in plain text. And so anyway, anybody between point A and point B that had the software or access to the network could see the messages you were sending. Now, I didn't think about... Uh, coming up with some sort of program to send codes because of work. I, it was never about work and I, I didn't want to circumvent anything with work and it had nothing to do with work, but it was just those instances at work where um, people were having, you know, inappropriate chats from, uh, from government hardware on government networks. And there were things in place on the network that caught those chats and those people got in trouble and, and ultimately were, were let go of their jobs. 
So again, I didn't want to come up with something for work. That was never the intent, but it was, it was those incidents or incidents that gave me the idea of coming up with some way to secretly send messages back and forth. And I kept going back to the decoder ring from Christmas story, which again is uh, a super easy code to break. I wanted to come up with something that would create codes that I could send to my friends and we could send codes back and forth that if we each had an electronic version of that decoder ring that we could easily encode and decode messages. Now, one of the biggest problems with um, the Caesar cipher, uh, and even if it's not a, an exact C Caesar cipher, let's say that um, uh, the code words are, you know, mixed up or whatever. Um, like the alphabet, the code is not not just shifted, but but the code is mixed up. If you've ever tried to do like a cryptogram in the newspaper, this is kind of what I'm describing. So if you see uh, a paragraph and a lot of the same letters are um, the letter Z, for example, and you're looking at uh, text that has spaces where the words are, right? So, um, uh, so you can see where the words are broken up, if that makes sense. Once you start seeing, like, there are, are certain characteristics to the English language. For example, there, you know, E is the most common vowel. So if you start looking on where vowels might be and you see the letter Z over and over and over, you think, okay, well, that might be the letter E. And so you replace all the Zs throughout the whole message with E. And then you, based on that, you go, okay, well, if these are two-letter words uh, or three letter words and it's blank, blank E, well, that might be the word the. So let's try this letter for T and this letter for H. And so you can kind of use, um, the amount of times letters are used, the frequency that letters are used in the English language to your advantage to try to, um, break, break these codes, right. As a game. So, um, my idea, so I started coming up with this idea, right? So this is the idea. How can I create something that generates codes that I could send to someone else that would be essentially unbreakable, right? That, that, that was the goal. So the very first thing I thought was um, you need to have some sort of code. Uh, one of the letters needs to be for the space. So, for example, let's the the example I was thinking of was like Return of the Jedi. Let's think of that. Like, I want to send this code that says Return of the Jedi to my friend, right? So you've got a six-letter word, a blank, two blanks, and then a space, three blanks for the space, and then the word Jedi, right? So whenever you see two letters and three letters, like of the is a pretty common thing, right? Um, you know, there's, there's only so many two letter words, right? Like there's of, and there's B and there's an, and, uh, I mean, that's not a, that's not an exhaustive list of two letter words in the English dictionary, but those are some pretty common ones. So you can kind of start dropping those in, right? And, and three letter word, you go, okay, so it's a two and a three, you go, okay, if that's the, and you put that E there, now you've got the E in return, you've got the E in Jedi. So it starts coming apart. And, and part of it is because you could see that you've got a two letter word, and a three-letter word, right? So what if you got rid of those spaces? That would make it a lot harder to crack. Either you bunch all the words together 
but then that can sometimes make it a little bit more difficult to read, right? Um, or you could substitute something else for the spaces. Now, if you're using the same letter for all the spaces, that's going to become pretty obvious what you're doing. But but anyway, I knew that that was something that had to be overcome, right? That, that was my idea. So um, I thought about um, trying to come up with these big arrays of, of letters that would be that you would encode stuff or whatever. Right. Um, but now let's get into the problem. <laughs> the problem is that f- for you're sending, you got a person sending a message and a person receiving a message and they both have to have the key, right? Which means you got to be able to send the key to the other person. So if you're sending a big, long list of random letters and someone you're worried about people uh, intercepting your message, then they can intercept the key. So that's no good, right? Um, now you can intercept uh, or you could give them the key in real life. Like you could secretly meet your buddy at the library and give them a thing. But now they got this piece of paper and it's, it's just not very convenient, right? So, so you got to find a way to be able to share the key that um, is not obvious and is, is convenient. Right. And so that became another hurdle um, that I came up with, with the program. Right. So as I started trying to think, like if you use a key, so this, this was, this was one of the breakthroughs. This was partial. This is where the breakthrough began for me. The breakthrough began when I realized that the key doesn't have to be the same length as the message um, or as or it doesn't have to be 26 characters long, right? So if there's a way for a computer to keep track um, in our example for return of the Jedi, the same letter in the message represents every letter E. So once you have the E in the word the, that gives you the E in Jedi and the E in return. But if those are three separate letters, somehow, if those were three separate letters, then getting one of the E's wouldn't give you the other E, okay? That was my first breakthrough. Now, you can't do that with letters. If the code is letters, if, if the, um, the, the breaking code or the, the key is letters because there's only 26 letters. But you can do it with numbers. So especially if you have spaces between the numbers, right? You could have, uh, you know, the number three could be an E and the number 17 could be an E and the number 422 could be an E. And now you got this long series of numbers that don't seem to make sense, right? And, and But those three letters are all E's. And it, it, this may not make sense to you, but it's coming together. So then I thought, you know what you could use for a key is you could use a book, you could literally use a book for the key. Now, the person on the other side has to have the exact same copy of the book that you have, right? We're talking about a, a used paperback book. So you go to the store and you find two different copies of the same paperback book, right? And now if I want to send Return of the Jedi, I can flip to the middle of the book and say um, page 52 uh, line three character 10. So I would say 52 comma three comma 10, and that would represent an R. Now this is pretty clunky, but, but we're getting there. 
And then, so I would have, you know, I could use an E on page 118 and I could use an E on page three and I could use an E on page 400. Now I've got completely different numbers that represent uh, the same letter, right? The problem with this, there's multiple problems with this. Um, actually, there's not. Um, <laughs> there are, but there aren't. The biggest problem is getting two copies of the book and getting it to someone and saying, hey, this is, you know, this is what we're going to use uh, as our code, as our code book, right? Um, that's the biggest, that's the biggest thing is, is communicating that and getting those books. Um, because no, not going to get into that yet because <laughs> eventually we're going to talk about the weaknesses and all these things. Um, but I thought, you know, if you use this book and nobody knows what the book is and you create, you know, a, a, a cipher code using in this sort of method, unless you have the book. I think it's unbreakable. And it turns out it is unbreakable because this is called a one-time pad and people have been using it for thousands of years. <laughs> so this is definitely a breakthrough moment in which I invented something that has been around for a century. <laughs> so I thought I was being pretty smart and, and maybe in a way I was, but I was being so smart. I mean, it's literally like sitting around your house and thinking, you know what? I can sure use the thing that heats up bread and really toasts it on one side using electricity, you know? And, and so the fact that I might invent a toaster, uh, is, I mean, it's kind of interesting, but it's also, uh, I should have this is a a result of being interested in a field but not being educated in a field. So I didn't I didn't know about all the different kinds of codes and ciphers and stuff. But this is essentially called um, a one type pad. And so the way that it works is that the sender and the receiver have to have the same uh, whatever decryption method that you're going to use, whether it's this book or whatever. Um, but they have to be identical and then you could send a message and they could receive a message. And, uh, and, and, um, essentially it is unbreakable. Now, when I say unbreakable and I want to get, I'm, we will get into this later, but when I say unbreakable, it's unbreakable if you only have the code. So if you find this code, it's unbreakable, but what it's not, it's the weak link in this is turns out it's not the code. It turns out it's the human beings. And that's, that's the problem. Uh, because both human beings know what the decryption key is. And so with modern encryption, like PGP and AES and all these other forms of encryption that we have on computers, um, the same, the person that has the encryption key doesn't have the same decryption key. You, it only goes one way, right? And so that is a much, much better system and much faster and better for computers to handle um, than something like a one-time pad. But I wasn't building something that to uh, protect the banking industry. I was literally wanting to create an electronic version of the Little Orphan Annie decoder ring. I just wanted it to have better codes than the Little Orphan Annie decoder ring. So, again, I had this idea of using a book, right? And so then I thought, well, this is a computer. Why would I do this manually? If each person had 
the same version of the book, but in a text file, now you've both got the same book. So going back to Alice in Wonderland, uh, if you download from uh, the Gutenberg, I think it was the Gutenberg online has library has uh, 50,000 or 100,000 uh, books that are in public domain. I think you could get Alice in Wonderland and you tell your buddy, Hey, this is, this is the code, right? We're each going to get download the same copy of Alice in Wonderland and have it on our hard drives. And now in the program, if I use that as the code and I type in a code like Jack Flack and say, encode it, then I can have the program go through Alice in Wonderland find a capital J and replace that with a number and then find a lowercase a and replace that with a number and then a C and a K and and a space and then flack, right? So the computer will do this automatically for me. Um, The only downside to this is that, and again, Okay, I am going to get into it at this point. (laughs) Who are we trying to protect this information from? If I'm sending fun messages to my friend that are little coded messages, who are we trying to protect this information from? Okay. If I'm trying to protect it from the people in my family who might also have access to my computer or maybe uh, a significant other that has access to my email. I'm going to be sending an email to a friend that is a series of numbers. They're not going to know what program I'm using, first of all, to encrypt it, right? They're not going to know that I'm even sitting. I mean, they're not going to understand any part of it, and they're not going to know that I'm using a book for a a one-time pad, and they're not going to know what book I'm using. So they will see if someone looks through your email, they will see that you sent a strange email. That was a series of numbers. uh, And someone who is inclined to think you're sending something with a, uh, a code in that way might think that maybe this is a one-time pad code by looking at the numbers or something like that. But, but there's no way to crack that code. So, You know, if you send it to the wrong person or you send it to accidentally, you uh, do a a CC and you CC the message to 10 people, the other people literally cannot break that code. Okay. Now, one of the problems with my program that I wrote, and I'm I'm getting ahead of the horse, but uh, I'm putting the car before the horse, but uh, is that where this falls apart is if you're trying to protect this code from somebody like a three letter agency, because the problem is the three letter agency knows that you're sending a code and then they just come to your house and they take all your stuff and then they have the software and then they will just, they'll go, Oh, it's a, it's a, some sort of software they're using and they'll go through your computer and they'll find the program and then they'll find what books you have on your computer. And it's, it wouldn't be that hard. I mean, the, the hardest part is knowing the concept, you know, also, um, I put this in the readme. I really, I didn't want to get into this at this point, but, um, if there are threats against you, uh, like your personal safety or the safety of your family, then this code breaks down very easily. <laughs> if, if, 
if someone comes into me and, and says, hey, by the way, we want to know what this code is, uh, or you're going to jail for 50 years, then I go, well, here's the code. <laughs> the code says, meet me for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Uh, I'll bring, you know, the milk or whatever. <laughs> so it doesn't hold up to the, that's the problem. And that is the, again, the great advantage with, um, uh, PGP and other modern forms of encryption is that people don't know the encryption key. Uh, you don't know both ends. So no matter how much someone tortures you, you can't give them the encryption key if you only have the decryption key. Okay, we're getting, getting ahead of ourselves here. So I come up with this idea, right? Okay, it's it's a, a toy. It's an encoder. You know, it's a, it's a decoder ring. And then I think, I mean, the name just came to me. It's like, oh, it's an e-coder ring because it's electronic, right? Um, so it's not decoder, it's e-coder. So now we're going to write e-coder ring and we're going to use these books. But again, the problem is if I'm going to send a message to my buddy, we both have to have the same book, which means if someone, uh, with enough, you know, interest in breaking this code, then we can assume they have access to our internet usage, right? And even if you go back to the example at work where things are in plain text, right? So someone with enough time, to break this code would look and see that, oh, my buddy and I both downloaded this one same book, right? So now that becomes kind of a dead giveaway. So I came up with this idea to put an e-coder ring that instead of downloading the book or having the key on your computer, which is an option, you can do that. And that's if you were able to, um, you know, give someone a copy of an ebook and, not transmitted over the internet. That's, that's a pretty good system, right? Um, so, so that's one, one way to do this. But my idea was you could also put in a URL and point it to that book online. So your key becomes something on the internet that you're not hosting. And I thought this was pretty revolutionary. I thought this was a pretty good idea. I still think it's a pretty good idea. So now instead of my buddy downloading the same copy of Alice in Wonderland and me downloading the same copy of Alice in Wonderland, we just both in, we both have a copy of Ecoder Ring. And for the key, you just point to that URL and that's what it's going to use. The URL of the book, which is hosted on the Gutenberg website, that's what it's going to use uh, to encrypt and decrypt your messages. So uh, that was going to be kind of the the end solution for e-coder ring. That's how e-coder ring was going to work. Um, then in one of those, um, what do they call it? Like a, a happy accident. Uh, when I was pointing the URL one time to an online resource, I accidentally pointed it to an online picture. And the online picture, the way I had coded this in Visual Basic was um, once you put the URL in to use for your key, you put that URL in and then you hit, you know, load it as a key. And it would load like that whole ebook into RAM, basically, into a giant variable. Uh, and and it would then use that, that variable and then search it systematically. So um, I don't have a, a specific example here, but let's say we're using... Alice in Wonderland. And we said, um, it starts off and it says once upon a time. Okay. So if I sent a message that started with the letter U, the code, 
the first letter in the code would be a six because sixth is the first U. So once O N C E space, that's five U for a pawn. So it would put a number six. Um, so let's say the first message, the first thing of my message was once, uh, was the word under. So it would put a six and then the next letter would be a nine because my secret message that I'm sending says under and the, the next N that it runs into, uh, is the ninth letter. So the code that it's created so far is the number six and then the number nine. And so it will do that. It will go all the way through the ebook that you've pointed it to, and it will just consecutively go through and pick out letters in order that recreate the message that you want to encrypt. One of the brilliant things, I'm not talking about myself being brilliant, but but the program, uh, the way it worked, works uh, current, is that it does the same thing for spaces, okay? So... Uh, the spaces between your words are just other numbers, though they don't stand out. So there's no way to tell if you're sending a bunch of short words or a few long words or a, a big, long you know message. It just, you can't tell because the spaces are just, it finds spaces in the book. Um, so uh, this, this I thought was pretty good. But again, I then accidentally pointed it to a picture. And when I pointed it to a picture, and looked at the variable, looked at the source code, uh, or, or what was in the variable, it was just jumbled ASCII junk. I mean, just random numbers and letters and stuff. But that also works as an encryption key, right? Because it doesn't matter if it makes sense. It could still, the program could go through there and find the, the letters that it needs to create your message. Now, the only... um. Uh, caveat here is that it has to be long enough. The message ha or the uh, key has to be long enough for you to have all the numbers and letters consecutively that are in your message. So if you use something like a very small graphic or a very small piece of text, you'll run out of letters in the key to create your message. And the program will actually warn you of that and say, um, you know, that, that it's not long. You need a longer key. But if you point to, I mean, even like the um, the Google logo that's at the top of the Google page, that has more than enough garbage gets loaded in to create a key uh, that you can use to send messages back. So that uh, is even better than a book. And I don't believe that my only concern for using a book was again the frequency of letters that show up in a book. So the letter E is going to show up more often than the letter U. Okay. Which means in theory, if you were to look at numbers, I thought this was I don't think this is possible. I don't think it's possible. But what my fear was is that more common letters might be closer together in the numbers that are listed in the code. So like if you see, you know, if the numbers on the code are like one, three, five, seven, and then 200, well, you might think maybe that 200 is a less common letter 
because it had to search further to find one. So that was my um, that was my fear. Now that doesn't help you with any of the other letters anywhere in there, and it really doesn't tell you what that letter might be, and it might not be correct. So because uh, if you use a book for your your encryption key then your message can be in complete upper and lower case and it does it separately. So um, you might have to search really far to find a capital K or a capital S or something, um, which would create that gap. So, but if you load a, a picture in, it's completely random order and you both on both sides get the same key. So at that point, all of that, all of your statistics, everything is out the window. Uh, it was a, a, a happenstance that I ran across that using a picture, basically the ask, it's not an ASCII version of the picture, but it's like that. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like the, the trying to load a binary into a text field and you're getting garbage, but that garbage is consistent and it can be used as a key, right? So basically that's what the program allows you to do. Uh, Ecoder ring in its earliest uh, incarnation, allowed you to use a local text file, use a web-based text file, or use a web-based graphic uh, or a local graphic, any of those things, and encrypt a message. And there are two windows. So there's the the plain text window and there's the encrypted uh, window. I did not, I thought about at one point in time, I thought about trying to write this in PHP and so I, so it could be hosted online. But then I thought, eh, you know, what if somebody uses it and they send a message and then it's like, you know, I mean, like what if a terrorist uses it? I mean, that's an extreme example, but if somebody uses that and then they come after your server and all, I don't want to be involved in that. Right. So I thought, you know what, this will be a standalone program. You encrypt it, and then you cut and paste the message out of the other window, and you send it to someone in email, and they get the thing. And then and you guys have already agreed upon, right? Like you say, okay, you go to my website, and there's a picture of my dog, and that is the decryption key. So we both point to that. Now, yes, uh, if you're only using HTTP, there would be that track. But then, you know, with modern internet, you know, with a VPN, let's say, or uh, my website is HTTPS, you're not going to have a record of loading that, that picture. And even if you do, that picture is, I mean, if you go to my website, it's going to load every picture that's on every page as you go through it. So it's not going to stand out. It's not like the picture is called secretkey.jpg. <laughs> it's Rob's dog.jpg, right? So, so it, it um, I I just couldn't believe how well it was working. Now, I what I was worried about, and and I wanted to to make it you know a little more advanced than just um, uh, you know the simple decoder ring like we saw in Christmas Story, right? The little orphan just turning the dial, but I did want to have my own dials. And so one of the dials, I started coming up with ideas for variables that would, that would alter <laughs> the encrypted code. So the first one I came up with was um, start, okay? So the way start works 
Uh, and these are all, there are four fields on Ecoder Ring on the program, and they're just text fields that you could type numbers into. And it defaults when it starts up as um, 0000, okay? When you start, uh, so, so, so the first one is called start. And it can be a number from whatever, anything, as long as it doesn't, doesn't uh, blow up the program. What start does is tells, is basically tell the program when it's using the key to jump to that number and then start there. So for example, let's say we have once upon a time, blah, 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 blah. That's how, that's how um, Alice in Wonderland begins. But uh, the next letter U isn't until, uh, position 150. So if we send a message that's encrypted and the first two letters are UU, it's going to be six and it's going to be the next number would be 150, right? Cause that's the first two U's that it, that it hits, but you can tell it, um, start and then, uh, you could say start 100. And so then the first letter if the, or the first number of the code, if this makes sense, would be 50 because what it's doing is it's jumping to the hundredth position and at that, and then it's starting and it's making that zero. So it starts the code from there. So really all you got to do is move past a certain amount of numbers or a certain amount of letters in the message. And it changes every single number in the code. So by changing this number, you change the entire encrypted list of, of the output. <laughs> okay. Now, um, so that's the first variable is start, but the second one is called shift. So, uh, I, I explained that incorrectly. I'm going to go back for a second. Let's say you start at point 100, right? And so that first U it hits, uh, the first number in the encrypted code would actually be 150. Okay. So it's jumping, it's jumping past all those first ones, but it actually, it does give you the right number. What shift does is it subtracts 100 and makes that zero. So it would make it 50. So, um, <laughs> uh, and you could shift it X amount. Uh, like I could shift it by five. And so instead of 150, it would be 145. Um, or 155, depending on if you shift it positive or negative. So uh, basically, these are all ways to further play with the numbers uh, in your encrypted message. So I, I was just so concerned that, that that if you used a book, that there would be some way to extrapolate the frequency of the numbers in the book, that by using these, these variables, you're changing the numbers in the code. Uh, the third variable that's in there is called skip. So let's, uh, so what skip does is you could do like three, and so if you're using the letter S, it will skip. I mean, if it's looking for the letter, letter S, it'll skip three S's and then use the fourth one it finds. And then it'll skip the next three S's and then use the fourth one it finds. So the numbers become much further away from each other. Um, and each one of these just really hides the numbers. Uh, it really it really makes it more bizarre. And then the fourth one is um, uh, called an XOR bit flip. Now I, I found, uh, that, uh, I mean, this is basically a way, if you think about the easiest way to explain it is this, let's say you have an eight bit number and that number is, um, let me do this quickly. One, 
2, 4, and 8. 12, 13, 14, 15. Okay, so the number 15, if you write it in an 8-bit code, is 00001111, right? Because if you go from right to left, you've got a 1, you've got a 2, you've got a 4, and you've got an 8. That makes 15, right? So if you do an XOR bit flip, it turns all the zeros to ones and all the ones to zeros, <laughs> which makes a completely different number, right? So if you turn the bit flip on, uh, it switches all the numbers and uh, makes them all different numbers. Every single number changes to a different number. So, uh, and, and you could put, it does it through a little mathematical thing. So it doesn't have to just be one or zero it multiplies it out. It gets complicated and I don't really understand everything. All I know is that if you put a number in there, it changes all the numbers. So, um, let's say, uh, my childhood phone number was, um, uh, whatever. And the, and the last four digits was five, six, seven, eight. I can put a code in here that says, you know, Hello, this is Jack Flack, and we'll be having a movie night tonight at 9 p.m., something like that, right? I can put the code as a picture on the internet, the picture of my dog, and it will encrypt it to this series of number, you know, of numbers, a long series of numbers, one number for every letter and space that's in that message. And then I can go into these four variables and put in five, six, seven, eight, which means it will start at the fifth position. It will shift all the numbers six to the right, it will skip every seventh letter, and then it will apply this bit eight. It, it it is so far from the original source of numbers. You would, it is unbreakable. It is on. It is not breakable by brute force. It's impossible to break. Once I had that, I thought now I've got something. Now I'm going to shift just a little bit here for just a moment. Because at the time that I was working on this, I had just, I won't say reconnected, but I had connected more or less uh, for the first time with members of the cult of the dead cow. Now, if you're not familiar, if you haven't been listening to this podcast, I've mentioned cult of the dead cow before. The cult of the dead cow were um, a very popular hacking group in the United States. And they have been around since the 1980s. They got their uh, beginnings on BBSs, writing text files, writing, and there was multiple members and the text files, some were very technical. Um, some were creative stories. Some were goofy stories. Some were things to promote free thinking. There was a, a big range of people. And these files were all numbered and they were all separate and they would get passed around uh, between people that called BBSs in the 1980s. I went to HoHoCon, which was a hacker convention, which was kind of the predecessor of uh, DEF CON. And I, it was hosted by members of the Cult of the Dead Cow, CDC. And when I saw some of those guys there, it was like seeing rock stars from my childhood. It was like seeing the most famous hackers in the world to me. Um, the cult of the dead cow has done many things. And some of the members have 
gone on to do, um, you know, you've got um, uh, the guys that went on uh, Mudge and 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 uh, who went on to uh, the Loft. You know, there was overlapping members. Um, it, it just a lot of a lot of people, right? But I w- had kind of connected to these guys online, uh, you know, a few years later through the internet and had kind of become friendly with them. Uh, in fact, I ended up later writing a couple of, of articles or, uh, text files for the cult of the dead cow. I wrote uh, a couple that were in like the four hundreds and then, um, uh, I, I, I don't know if things kind of fizzled or, or whatever, but, um, uh, this is what I'll say about the, the, Cult of the Dead Cow. You know, I mean, in one on one aspect, you could say people grow up, right? Like you could say, man, it was great when you were a teenager to write about, you know, burning down City Hall, and then you get old and you get a job with City Hall, right? So, so there's a certain amount of that young anarchy passion that that just uh, through um, uh, attribution is that the the right word? Attrition? I got that. Attrition. Just just kind of goes away. You know, it just happens, right? I will say, on the other hand, some of the most creative and inspirational people are a member of that group. Uh, so many of those people have given me ideas, have given me support. When I released um, uh, Invading Spaces and Commodore, they had it on their website. They um, made me a member of the Cult of the Dead Cows Ninja Strike Force, which was a uh, offshoot of, of CDC. Um, I... I and friends with several of the guys on Facebook and, and, um, and offline. And, and some of those guys, you know, have normal day jobs and some of those guys work in security and don't talk about their jobs. Um, it's just a super interesting group of guys. Uh, and every one of them that's a member of it, nobody is, has just, I mean, they, they all have interesting ways to think about security and, and, um, um, and, and just about the world in general. Right. Um, so, Lots of cool people. And as I was working on this and talking to them, they said, you know what we should do is we should brand this and make this a cult of the dead cow ninja strike force tool. <laughs> I said, really? You want to release this as a cult of the dead cow? Now, cult of the dead cow had been known for releasing a very famous application called back orifice, which basically was a tool that people used for a long time to uh you know access remotely access windows machines and and um uh you know basically cause mayhem and destruction <laughs> uh so uh i was like i don't know that this is is on par with that but they were very very supportive and they said yeah this is this is a thing and you know there's an offshoot of uh uh cdc of members who were big in supporting the hacktivism uh, movement. And people told me, they said, listen, this could be a way for people to send messages in and out of places where they shouldn't, you know, or where governments are being oppressed or whatever. So I said, I'm not against it. Uh, and I just didn't personally, I didn't think it was worthy. I thought I was developing a, a, you know, electronic version of the little orphan, anything. And now all of a sudden they're like, well, we want to release this as a, as a, you know, an actual thing. So I, I said, that's fine. You know, so that that's kind of what ended up happening is um uh I, I went through a couple different iterations of uh e coder ring and uh eventually it did get released by uh it's i 
don't know if it's still on the cult. I think the Cult of the Dead Cows website, just from years and years of people hammering it, I think the, the website is, is, is shut down or redirects or something. But um, uh, but this was this was on their page as a download for a, a, a Cult of the Dead Cow Ninja Strike Force uh, tool, which I was uh, absolutely flattered and, and kind of uh, surprised by, to be honest with it, you know. So... Let's get back to talking about how to crack codes sent with ecoder ring. And this is something that I put in the documentation. I said, this will stand up to any amount of brute force. I literally, I mean, it would, I, I mean, you could spend a billion, like I'm not exaggerating a billion years trying to brute force these codes and they will not crack. You can throw every computer in the universe against this and try to brute force the crack and it cannot be cracked because there is no correlation between the numbers, right? So if you just have the code and you're trying to brute force the code, it can't be broken. Um, and, and that's the benefit of, of one time pad <laughs> that that's, that's why they're great. Uh, and in addition to that, you know, all those numbers, like the five, six, seven, eight. Um, if, if you and your friend, if you say you coordinate, you ride the bus and you lean over and you say, listen, the code is the picture of my dog on my website and the secret, uh, you know, variables are five, six, seven, and eight. Uh, I mean, you create, you've created something that even somebody with the program, uh, and access to your computer and access to your internet logs cannot crack. It cannot be done. Okay. Cannot. I'm not saying given enough time. I'm saying underline point stop cannot be brute force cracked. It's just not possible. And I don't mean it's not impossible with, I don't know if I'm stressing this up. It's not that it's not possible with enough computing power. It's not possible. It just, there's nothing that relates point A to point B. It can't, it can't be reversed. Okay. Then what I said in the documentation was it will survive any amount of brute force attacks. And I said, what it won't, what it won't survive, what your code will not survive is you being waterboarded. And that is the ultimate problem weakness with ecoder ring, which is if I send a message to my buddy, if I send a message to my buddy, nobody cares, right? But let's say, uh, let's say I'm in North Korea. I'm just throwing this out there. I don't know why I would be there. Let's say I've been sending a message to someone in North Korea and they send a message back to me and their ISP notes, notices that they're sending messages back and forth that are just these long lists of random numbers. And it raises a flag. Uh, and, and I'm not going to – I don't want to use this example in, in the U.S., so I, that's why I'm using it in North Korea, and it, this is completely, completely hypothetical. Um, so then someone from the government goes and gets this person and says, what's this code? And they say, well, I'm not telling you. And then they say, okay, well, how about this? We're going to pull your wife in this room and start chopping her toes off one at a time until you tell us what the code is. <laughs> Or we're going to torture your children, or we're going to waterboard you, or we're going to hang you upside down for a week and then come in and ask what the code is. That is the problem with, uh, and I keep using the word problem. It's not a problem. That is the weakness with ecoder ring 
but because Ecoda Ring is a, a one-time, essentially a one-time pad, it's just a very, very technical um, with a lot of bells and whistles, but it is still a one-time pad style of encryption. Um, but that's what it does. That's, that's where the weakness is. It's not in the code. It's in the human being knowing what the decryption code is, that the encryption and the decryption codes are the same. That's, that's the weakness. So the weakness in the chain becomes you as a human being, and that there are certain things that people with enough threats can be coerced into giving up. Right. So that is, um, that's the weakness. Uh, so I don't recommend using this if you're trying to hide messages from your government <laughs> or if you're a, a real spy or something like that. I, yeah, I don't know. Um, but if you're trying to do anything else, yeah, I think, I think it holds up. It still holds up today. Um, for this podcast, I have not revisited Ecoder Ring in many years. And so I went and revisited it and it said uh, on a windows 11 machine and it said you need a dll registered and and um apparently there's some dll that that has been uh left behind from windows in recent years and so i did some googling and i found the dll and and uh you know was able to um uh, register the DLL. I think, I think what happened was it was a used an old 32 bit DLL that got left, uh, in the dust. And so now if you go put a 64 bit DLL and, and register it, then, then the program does, does still work. Uh, I don't have or use visual basic anymore, so I'm not going to update it. Um, uh, and I don't have the source code, I don't think anymore. So if I were going to update it, I'd have to rewrite it from scratch. It wouldn't be that hard to do. There are things that I would do differently, um, there's a lot of different buttons that kind of do the same thing. Like there's one button that says use local text file, one button that says use web URL. Then there's one that says apply the key And this. I wouldn't do any, I don't know. Probably, it probably made sense if I was working on the back end, and those are different, um, processes. And so it made sense to put different buttons for them on the front end. But now I would just say, put your key here and then hit apply. Um, and then that would be it, you know, cause it doesn't, you don't need different buttons for whatever the key is. It, it, it shouldn't matter to the end user. So that's, that's something I'm revisiting it. Something that I would do different. Now in the readme file that I included in this, uh, I included a, uh, very basic, uh, message, uh, which is encoded. It's in the readme file. And there's a link to the decryption image, which is the screenshot of the program, which is still on my website, um, uh, which I'll give you the URL at the end of the show. But uh, so you could download it and you, you got to hop through those hoops to use that uh, to register that DLL. But once you've done all that, it does still work and you could decrypt the message that said the readme and, and you could see that. So to get some attention for Ecoder Ring, I decided to put up a little challenge. And I put up this challenge and said, if you can crack, and I put up a code and I said, if you can crack this code, then uh, I will give you a hundred dollars. And that was the challenge, something to that effect. And I posted it a few places online and a couple forums and this and that. And then I waited a year, I think. And then the next year I came back and I said, now I'm going to offer $200. And so my idea was, I, so this was the thing. 
I thought about offering $1,000 or $10,000. Now, I can't pay $1,000 to someone who cracks a code. I can't pay $10,000. Um, I could pay $100 if someone cracked a code. So I was willing to do that. But this someone, I don't remember who it was, to be honest with you, but someone told me this because I was having a conversation with someone at the time. It was probably somebody from the Cult of the Dead Cow. But I said, you know, I could offer, I'm confident I could offer $1,000 or $10,000. And someone said, here's the problem. If you offer $10,000, then someone might come to your house. Like someone might say, hey, I've, I've contacted your boss at work and I'm going to try to, I'm going to lie to your boss and I'm going to try to blackmail you unless you give me the code. Or now I'm going to try to hack your house or your computer until I get it and, and try to figure out what the, the decryption code was. Or, you know what I mean? Like, like what you're doing is you're, you're taking the focus away from brute forcing the code. And you're putting the focus on how could someone get the key and how someone could get the key, which I mentioned earlier, the weakness is the human being. And since I haven't sent it to anyone else, I'm the only one that has the decryption key, which means you need access to my computer to get the decryption key or figure out what key I used online. Um, and the only way to do that is to get access to my computer or to me as a human being. So it wasn't like I would... I mean, like, I feel safe offering a million dollars, you know, to see if someone could crack the code. But then if someone comes and puts a gun to my head uh, and then they're like, OK, I get it. I get the million dollars. Well, I don't have a million dollars. And also somebody was threatening to shoot me. <laughs> so maybe that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> maybe, you know, so I kind of backed off of doing that challenge. Um, but it was a very real challenge. And I um, had used a photo which was available on the internet. And uh, I looked as part of this uh, podcast and I went and looked and the photo is still hosted online and I use it as a decryption key and it still worked. So um, I, I had forgotten what the random, I, re I remembered in general what I had done for the random, the four different numbers uh, in the variables. And I had to try a couple things, but I did get that to work. And then when I did, uh, the, um, uh, the code decrypted. So, I mean, it is possible still to decrypt that code if you knew the picture and if you knew the variables, but if you know the, the, the key and the variables, you could decode any code. So, uh, don't come to my house. Don't try to kidnap me or kill me. I've, I've, I've revoked that, uh, the challenge, uh, or rescinded the offer. So I'm not gonna, I'm not paying a million dollars. So don't come to my house. <laughs> Um, so, you know, ultimately what, what happened with Ecoder Ring? Not, not much. It didn't make a lot of waves out there. There were people that used it. And I actually had, uh, at the time, some people send me codes, you know, and then they would say, then they would send me the decryption. I actually had somebody one time send me codes and they said, you probably have a way to decrypt it, you know, like since I was the author. And I was like, no, there's no, there's nothing built into this. I, I don't have any way to decrypt codes with it, you know? Um, and again, I did think about doing an online version of this where there would just be a website out there and, and people would go, but you know, like I said, eh, you know, if it gets misused, then now all of a sudden you got a, a web server and somebody's going to go take your server down and this, you know, so, um, you, it would 
absolutely have to be a server set up that didn't maintain any logs or anything. I don't know. It just, just kind of became a mess. I didn't want to, I didn't want to mess with that, you know? So, um, but as it is right now, like, like I said, I wouldn't, uh, if, if I needed to send a message, if I already had the decoder key, if somebody, if somebody already had that established, right? Like always use the picture of my dog, always use these four numbers for the thing. And I, had to send a message to someone that my life depended on, I could use this. I would, I would feel confident. Um, the problem is, is that I don't have that agreement set up with anybody. I don't have anyone else with this set up that has, that knows a common key or that knows, uh, those four variables. And so it wouldn't do me much good. Um, and when you're, <clears throat> you know, let's say you've been detained and you're trying to get a secret message out and you don't, you don't have any way to use the software to, you know, encrypt or decrypt. So, um, it, it's not super practical in very many, uh, situations, but what it is practical for is being the electronic equivalent of the little orphan Annie, uh, decoder ring, you know, and, and that's what, uh, uh, you know, if you treat it as that, you treat it as a fun, little electronic, uh, program, then, uh, you know, then it's kind of fun. Right. And, um, you can use it with your friend and you can create, uh, uh, you know, codes and, and encrypt them and decrypt them and send them back and, and, you know, just use it as a fun toy. That's really, really what it's intended for. Uh, if you want to play around with ecoder ring, there is a, subsection of my website, which is robohara.com forward slash software. If you go there, there are downloads to uh, about a dozen programs. I don't know that all of them work anymore, and I don't know that many of them are useful uh, anymore. Um, so this was a, they were at one point in time and uh, different mostly visual basic apps that I had created are on this page. And one of those is ecoder ring. So you will see that. Uh, and, uh, if you click ecoder ring also on that page is a secret code and it, it starts off at, with 165, 169, 170, 995, 1043. And it goes through, um, a series of numbers up to 56,502. And, uh, in the instructions, it tells you what the decoder message uh, or what the key is, and it's a picture that's on the same website. So you can download Decoder Ring and actually use the picture uh, that's on this website as the uh, decoding key, and you can uh, decode that message. So, uh, and actually, as I'm looking at this, it says. Uh, no, some windows 2003 slash Vista machines do not have the DLL MSST. Um, and it says download, uh, and it has a link. I want to see if this link works. Um, sure does. Uh, so there's a link to the DLL and it says, uh, unzip it and, um, use the batch file included to register. So I completely, uh, apparently I solved this problem a decade ago and forgot about it. (laughs) <laughs> so I resolved it uh, again today. So or uh, this week. So anyway, that's um, pretty much the story of ecodering. It was my uh, my little attempt to make an electronic version of the 
little orphan Annie decoder ring that kind of blew up into something a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger than uh, that original decoder ring. feedback about this or any episode of the show you can email me directly at rob o'hare at rob join the conversation on facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcast follow me on twitter at commodore come chat with me on the amigos retro gaming discord server or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF if you have a question that you would like answered on one of my podcasts or would simply like to support my shows head on over to patreon.com forward slash rob o'hara to sign up today and join supporters like Scrap Arcade, Eric Strianisi, or Jason Warns. All of my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. You Don't Know Flack is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the RSS feed over at podcast.robohara.com. To find more podcasts by me, visit podcast.robohair.com for links and information about my other shows. Congratulations. If you made it this far, you now know a little bit more about Flat. We'll see you here next time. <laughs>